0: Hi, I'm Yusuf Zin. My latest TVO Today podcast is on how a Canadian ends up in a Chinese prison, and if he's even alive. Listen and subscribe to Extradition. Available now, wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Welcome everyone to the On Poly podcast. I'm Steve Paken And I'm John Michael McGrath. The Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms has been in place for nearly four decades and never in that time has the province of Ontario used a clause in that charter to override a court decision. Never. Until now. It's a big deal, and we'll tell you why. Also, we've had our friend John Wright from Maru Public Opinion do some polling, exclusively for this podcast, and it reveals some fascinating developments on the state of the current Ontario government's popularity. It's Tuesday, June 15th, 2021, so let's get to it. JMM, our country repatriated its constitution with an accompanying Charter of Rights and Freedoms in 1982. And ever since then, no provincial government in Ontario has seen fit to use a clause that's in that charter to override a court decision. That streak is now over. The Ford government has used the notwithstanding clause of the Charter to set aside a court decision that would have struck down an election expenses law that this government passed. Now, this is perfectly legal for Ford to have done this. But as we say, it's also unprecedented. And as we sit here recording this on a Monday afternoon...
0: Why don't you update us? What's happening in the Ontario legislature over the weekend? Uh, MPPs were called back for a special sitting. Uh, it's a, a rare event on two counts. Uh, first, they are sitting outside the usual political calendar at Queen's Park. Uh, and secondly, because they sat over the weekend, including uh, a late into the evening sitting on a Saturday, uh, you know, people might wonder why the government would bother to do this. They have a majority in the legislature and they can, uh, you know, in the final accounting, there's never really any mystery how this vote is going to turn out? Um, and the answer is basically the legislature's uh, standing orders, the rules that govern debate at Queen's Park. Uh, basically, the government just needs to uh, burn through a certain amount of time on debate before they can force it through the next stage. So that's what they did over the weekend. They uh, went through debate time to... Uh, Passes a, a scheduling motion, basically uh, forcing the bill to to get passed on a certain uh, timetable. And uh, certainly by the time this episode uh, reaches our listeners' ears, uh, it will have already passed third reading and received royal assent. Uh, it passed second reading just before we uh, entered our respective uh, recording spaces. <laughs> and, and just so we're clear, they did sit all night long, right? Overnight? Uh, yes, uh it, it, There is the power uh, of the government to uh, basically force uh, MPPs to sit uh, for uh, debate overnight. And, uh, you know, we saw them do this with the uh, bill to cut Toronto City Council in half back uh, at the beginning of Ford's tenure. Uh, Also uh, an occasion where the Ford government uh, threatened to use the notwithstanding clause, uh, but ended up not needing to because a a court decision that they had lost uh, was reversed on appeal. So when the government uses the notwithstanding clause to set aside a
1: court's decision, which is the case here, and then recrafts new rules for election advertising, let's figure out what the new rules are going to be. What does that landscape look like
0: once the new bill is in place and the law is in effect? The big change in the law, and the one that was nullified by a court last week, uh, is a restriction on what third parties can do and say prior to an election. So in 2016, the Liberal government under Kathleen Wynne, uh, you may recall they were catching a lot of political heat because at the time Ontario's campaign finance rules were um, a bit of a wild west. They were certainly a lot looser than the federal rules are. And uh, in the midst of a bit of... um, let's say, political scandal, uh, the Liberals brought in uh, a much tougher campaign finance regime and it included a rule saying that a third parties, that is, uh, anybody who's not a registered political party, uh, they have to restrict their spending in the six months before an election was called. Uh, earlier this year, in 2021, uh, the Ford government actually extended that restriction from six months to 12 months. And that extension in particular was what uh, Justice uh, Edward Morgan found was uh, too much of a breach for the Charter's guarantee of free expression. Uh, but <laughs> that court decision is going to be short-lived uh, because the uh, use of the notwithstanding clause this week will effectively reverse Justice Morgan's decision and will will reimpose or reinstate that uh, 12-month limit. Uh, and of course, we are less than 12 months away from an election, so it is going to effectively be you know, immediately applicable. Uh, anybody who is not a registered political party in Ontario is going to be subject to these uh, third-party spending rules. And again, let's understand why this is a big deal
1: for so many groups. We're thinking of teachers, we're thinking of nurses, we're thinking of Ontario Proud, for example. There are all sorts of third parties uh, that are not going to be caught by this new limit. And And why it's a big deal is... If you have a finite amount of money that you're allowed to spend and you can spend it in a six month period of time, well, that's a bigger bang for your buck than if you can spend it over a 12 month period of time. Now you've got the same amount of money, but it's over a 12 month period in which you can spend it. So presumably these groups feel their free speech rights are being infringed upon as a result. I got that right.
0: Absolutely. And, you know, it's worth saying that the dollar figure involved here is not a huge amount of money. It was six hundred thousand dollars was the limit that the liberals brought in or about one hundred thousand dollars for each of the six months that the the spending cap applied to. Uh, and what the uh, progressive conservative government did was uh, take the same dollar figure and just extend it for twice as long. So effectively, you went from being able to spend, you know, about $100,000 a month to being able to spend $50,000 a month. And in, especially in like the GTA media market, uh, $50,000 does not buy you a lot. Uh, And, you know, I've certainly spoken to uh, political operatives who say like, these spending limits are so tight, uh, that effectively, they would have to hold their fire until very nearly the 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 last month before an election or they just couldn't afford to to do anything
1: Hmm. all right so we will obviously continue to watch this story it's an historic story Uh, we have never seen the notwithstanding clause used in the province of ontario before yes in quebec many times i think maybe once in saskatchewan Uh, but as for ontario this is new so we'll have to see how this one rolls out Now, let's get to some of the polling that our friend John Wright from Maru Public Opinion did exclusively for this podcast, and we want to thank John very much for that. We asked a bunch of different questions, so we're going to roll them out now. And Maru was in the field a week ago. They surveyed more than 1,100 people, John Michael, and that's considered a good sample size when you're doing this kind of polling. Now, first, on the issue of shutting down the school year and not bringing back in-class learning... The public seems to agree with that call. Sixty nine percent of Ontarians surveyed agree with Doug Ford's position that the schools should be out for the rest of the year. No more in class learning. Only 31 percent disagree. Now, when you're on side with almost seven out of 10 Ontarians politically, JMM, that's a pretty good place to be.
0: Yeah, I wouldn't have predicted this one if you'd asked me uh, before we (laughs) did the poll. Uh, You know, there has been such uh, anger around the issue of schools reopening or not uh, online and in social media. And I I think I would have predicted a more even split. Um, I'm not sure that... uh, uh, Yeah, this was a bit of a surprise to me. Uh, Seems like a winner for the government. You know, as you say, seven of ten Ontarians are are basically okay with it. And, um, you know, that's not a bad place to be as we go over the summer. Uh, I think one sort of point of caution, I guess I would say, is uh, we'll see what school reopening looks like in September. Uh, You know, I don't think the government can um, rest on its laurels on this particular point. I was just going to say that. I was going to say that the, the government should not infer, therefore, that people don't want the schools back
1: open in September, because, uh, listen, I have no polling on this, but I bet they do. <laughs> yes. I'll just say that. Okay, let's keep going here. Let's look at the provincial reopening, which we're in the midst of stage one right now. 52% of those surveyed approve with the government's reopening and move into stage one. 48% disapprove of the go- of the job that the government is doing. That's
0: a pretty even split, 52 48 yeah, This is almost the opposite of the last question. I would have actually predicted a, a, a much more substantial split one way or the other. It seems like something that people would have strong feelings about. But this almost makes me wonder whether people are like flipping a coin before they answer the poll. Um, <laughs> you know, again, not a terrible result for the government, uh, you know, but this one obviously a bit more mixed. How well
1: do people think the premier is managing the pandemic? Uh, the marks are not quite so good. 46%. Approve of the job Doug Ford and his government are doing managing the pandemic, 54% disapprove, 46, 54. Your
0: reaction to that? I guess the thing that this makes me think about is how, really, from the beginning of his provincial political career, at least uh, from the beginning of 2018 when Doug Ford entered the PC leadership race, there's been a pretty consistent theme that you know his personal brand tends to pull behind that of the PC party generally. Uh, Obviously, there have been some exceptions to that over the last few years, but there were certainly people in 2018 who, you know, did not love Doug Ford, but were sick and tired of the Liberals, and so they sort of held their nose and voted for the Tories. Um, And part of me wonders if we might be seeing a bit of a return to normalcy in Ontario politics, you know, uh, uh, people not exactly uh, giving their wholehearted endorsement to uh, Doug Ford, but not hating the job the government is doing either.
1: Well, let's ask the direct
0: question here then. As to the Premier's overall job
1: rating, how well do you think Premier Doug Ford is doing at his job of being premier of Ontario, 48% approve, 52% disapprove. So again, a fairly even split, but those numbers, they don't really tell the whole story here, do they?
0: No. And, you know, again, context and history matter. Uh, Just last year in the um, aftermath of the first wave of COVID-19, you know, he was in the mid-60s. He had uh, this, uh, you know, Halo around him uh, to a certain extent, uh, lots of uh, approval, and you know, lots of other premiers in the country benefited uh, from their response to the first waves. And uh, Doug Ford, in this case, has fallen a lot from those highs. Uh, he, you know, was in the mid 60s, obviously now uh, below 50%. Um, he is still well above where he was in early 2020. If we cast our our memories back to the pre-COVID time of, you know, let's say January of 2020, uh, he was very, very unpopular. They'd had that really disastrous year of 2019 with uh, an incredibly unpopular budget. And then, uh, you know, I, I, I think... Certainly, it's sort of the received wisdom that Doug Ford's personal unpopularity uh, helped cost Andrew Scheer the federal election in the fall of 2019. Um, so they are lower than they were uh, at their best, <laughs> but they're also hmm. uh, higher uh, in approval than they were at their worst. Uh, so I guess you know at the moment, all you can really say is we've got some sense of what his ceiling and floor are as, for, as far as um, approval ratings go. Right. Now, interestingly enough, we we not only asked about Doug Ford's approval rating,
1: we also wanted to know about Dr. David Williams, the just departed former medical officer of health for the province of Ontario. And it may surprise those listening to hear that David Williams has a 58 percent job approval rating. That is 10 points higher than the
0: premier's. Are you one of those, John Michael, who's surprised to see that number? Uh, I was surprised, uh, you know, and maybe that just reflects uh, on the extent to which I was in a, you know, a reporter's bubble. Something I think uh, a lot of us in media struggle against, and and uh, I had sort of assumed that if you knew who Dr. Williams was at all, uh, you might have a more critical take on his uh, job performance over the last year. Uh, you know, Certainly, you and I have talked about, I, I think in particular, his communication style and how he is not always the clearest uh, communicator at a time when clear communications are really valuable. Uh, but it looks like uh, he leaves office with uh, much of the province wishing him well, if, if nothing else. Indeed. All right, now we thought uh, we
1: would ask a kind of an offbeat I hope interesting question here. It's a bit of a what if question. We asked people if, if you could choose any of the three major parties at Queen's Park to have been in power over the past 15 months and have been in charge of managing this pandemic, who would you have chosen? Okay. It's not who would you vote for if the election were held today. It's who, if you had the choice, would you like to have seen in charge of managing the pandemic over the last 15 months? And interestingly enough, the biggest chunk of people, 42%, opted for the current progressive conservatives. Only 25% would have preferred the NDP, the new Democratic Party, to have been in power. Only 24% would have approved of the liberals. And uh, actually, we got the Greens in there as well. 9% would have uh, rather seen Mike Schreiner uh, with his hand on the tiller over the last little while. What do you infer from those numbers?
0: Well, I mean, I I love the idea of the sort of uh alternative history, speculative fiction, in which uh, Mike Schreiner was premier during the pandemic. I think that would have been fascinating. Um, but, you know, I think these numbers, it's true that we didn't ask for voter intention, but I think you could say these sort of fairly reflect voter intention. Um, if, if people weren't directly thinking about the next election, this looks a lot like what the next election could look like, right? Um, if, if these numbers were voter intention, you know, at forty-two percent, you would expect the progressive conservatives to have uh, another majority government. Um, you know that that question of the um, progressive vote splitting uh, between the New Democrats and the Liberals—we've discussed this before. You know it's it's an interesting part of what's going on in Ontario politics right now, and, and it's worth watching to see whether people uh, continue to split the vote between the second and third party, uh, or whether you know it wouldn't take many votes, frankly, from either the Liberals or the NDP, uh, to switch parties uh, before things would look a lot more competitive and potentially put the progressive Conservatives in uh, some real jeopardy in the next election.
1: Yeah, if you're a a member of the PC party right now or you're one of their partisan supporters, you got to love what those numbers say. (laughs) Because those numbers say Doug Ford's on his way to a second majority government and his opponents are quite evenly split, uh, which is... That's the way Tories stay in power. You split the center-left vote between the Liberals and New Democrats, and the more you can split that vote 50-50, the better off you're doing. Now, we got one more question in here, and again, this ones (laughs) we had a little fun with this one here. We wanted some sense of whether or not people knew who the leader of the Ontario Liberals is. Now, you ask why did we only ask about the Liberals? Well, I'll tell you why. Doug Ford's been in the public spotlight for a decade, right? He was on Toronto City Council before, he's now the Premier. His name recognition I don't think is much of an issue. Andrea Horvath, the opposition leader, is about to lead her party into a fourth general election. She has been around for a long time. Mike Schreiner of the Greens has been around for a decade as well as the leader of that party. The leader of the Liberals only won that job 15 months ago. So do people know who he is? And rather than just cold call people here, we offered them five (laughs) options. Okay, who's the leader of the Ontario Liberals? We asked, is it Kathleen Wynne, Manuel D'Souza? John Fraser, Stephen Del Duca, or none of the above? Now, John Michael? (laughs) Okay, here's my survey of one. Do you know the correct answer, John Michael? Uh, Yes, it's Stephen Del Duca. (laughs) (laughs) Congratulations. Okay, you are in the majority. And the good news for Stephen Del Duca is 69% of those surveyed picked his name as the leader of the Liberal Party. Seven out of ten. That's not bad. The bad news is... 23 percent said none of the above. So there's still a quarter of Ontarians surveyed who really had no idea uh, that he's the guy. So I guess he's still got a bit of a job uh, to improve his proof, his profile.
0: Yeah, and we've discussed this before. It's it's legitimately a hard thing to do when you are the leader of a a very diminished third party, uh, no, no official status at the legislature. Uh, he himself does not have a seat. Uh, he has, you know, because of the pandemic, has also you know not really been able to go out in public. He was actually at the legislature on Monday. Uh, He uh, went to to speak there in person. He's otherwise been doing a a lot of press conferences over Zoom lately. Uh, So, you know, I I think you could say um, the the good news is that he's got room to grow, I guess. Um, But, you know, the clock is ticking and uh, obviously something that uh, the Liberal Party is going to work at uh, hard over uh, the summer and fall. Interestingly enough, five percent of those
1: surveyed thought Kathleen Wynne was still the Liberal Party leader, which may be wishful thinking among her supporters or who knows? Maybe they just haven't watched the news much in a long (laughs) while. But uh, she's still a member of the Ontario legislature, of course. She's still the member for Don Valley West, but she's not the leader of the Liberal Party anymore.
0: Uh, No, and not running again in the next election. And uh, I mean, I know it's just five percent and and one percent shouldn't be terribly dramatic about these kinds of things but that that's one of those results that makes me question why i do this all day every day (laughs) (laughs) no 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 if the number were 50 percent then you could question
1: okay five percent you're right that's still half as many people as think elvis is still alive so i think that's a reasonable number okay you make me feel better (laughs) okay let's return to
0: the election spending story that we discussed earlier jmm So there are really two parts to this story, Uh, the first being what is in the law that the court said was unconstitutional, and the second being the use of the notwithstanding clause. Uh, We tackle both of these issues with Paul Cavalluzzo of Cavalluzzo LLP. Uh, He is the lawyer for Working Families, uh, the group that opposes both the government's new law and the use of the notwithstanding clause. Here's Steve's conversation with him.
1: Paul, let's start with this. What did the court say was unconstitutional about the election expenses law that was struck down?
2: Well, the court said that the twelve-month period in which the third parties would be regulated uh, was uh, too long in terms of the Charter protection of freedom of expression, and found that there was absolutely no evidence that twelve months was needed because the previous regulated period of six months was found to have been adequate and, in fact, effective. And as a result of that, the court said that 12 months was uh, far too long and indeed far longer than any other jurisdiction in Canada.
1: Well, this, of course, raises the obvious question. Six months is OK. 12 months is too long. How do you know where to draw the line?
2: Well, I guess one thing you can do is to determine whether six months worked. And the evidence before Justice Morgan was from the government's own, own witnesses, expert witnesses, was that six months was effective and did the track. Uh, so that uh, was clearly conclusive, and there was no need to go longer than 12 months. And what Justice Morgan said is that when you're violating charter rights, you've got to do it in a minimal way. And if you can do it in six months, that's what you should do rather than 12 months.
1: Well, as you well know, we violate rights in this country all the time, and we have, uh, we have the constitutional right to do so, I guess. Is it your view there should be no restrictions whatsoever?
2: I'm not saying that. I'm saying that the restrictions which do infringe upon political speech, which is really the core value underlying Section 2, has to be tailored very, very carefully to ensure that uh, even though the speech may be regulated, it's done in such a careful way uh, that the speech is not defeated. And that's what was clearly not done in this case, because once again, the evidence was Six months did the trick. Why did you have to go to 12 months with no study or report, indeed, by a complete surprise?
1: You know the government's position on this, of course, is that there are far too many, in its judgment, too many outside so-called special interest groups that are perverting democracy by inundating the airwaves and social media with attack ads. And I guess they're concerned that most of those attack ads are going to be aimed at them. Is that a legitimate
2: concern? Well, certainly uh, passing legislation in order to deal with what view to be your political enemies is not a legitimate concern. But dealing more with the, uh, their alleged concern, um, it's, it's really nonsense because, uh, if you look at, uh, what happened between two, the 2014 election and 2018 election, which they never refer to the third party spending in the 2018 election was half of what it was in 2014. And indeed, in 2014, third party spending was 72% of what the political parties uh, spent. And by 2018, with the WIN law, that's the Premier WIN law, it was down to 10%. So that's why the government witnesses said that the six-month limit was effective. And uh, there was absolutely no need to go to 12 months because all the indicators were that the six months worked. And um, uh, the suggestion is, since it worked, one asks, well, why would the government introduce 12 months? And I think you answered the question, because they're targeting what they view to be their political enemies.
1: Well, it, I mean, uh, to be sure that there, there are unions, there are others who will want to uh, spend money advertising to get their point of view across during an election period and before. Uh, but there are also, you know, things like Canada Proud, Ontario Proud. There are groups on the other side of the political spectrum that would also want to wade into this space and advertise as well. When you weigh it all, one versus the other, does one dominate more than the other in
2: your view? Yes, because uh, the trade unions, for the most part, dominate uh, third party spending and have done historically, particularly since 2003 when Working Families was created in order to deal with the common sense uh, revolution. Uh, yes, there are there are parties on the other, third parties on the other side, like uh, Proud Ontario, uh, but the bulk of the third party spending uh, are trade unions, and that's the concern of the government.
1: So there's no question in your mind this will disproportionately affect your clients and that it is not sort of an even, even brushstroke as, as you look at this new law.
2: That's correct, uh, particularly in light of the fact that Um, that, uh, you know, the trade unions don't really have a lot of access to mainstream uh, media. Uh, The government has unlimited advertising. Uh, The political parties are only regulated for six months, not 12 months. There's all kinds of indicators that suggest that this was a draconian law aimed at uh, my client.
1: I do have to say, I see union leaders on television and on the radio, and of course on the program I do, all the time. Do you really think they can't get the word out?
2: Well, they, they, fortunately, TVO is a very fair uh, station and, and uh, listens to all sides of the, any kind of public policy issue. But certainly when you're looking at, for example, in Toronto, you've got four newspapers. Uh, uh, three of them would abolish trade unions if they could. <laughs> uh, so that I think that uh, you know, there are certain exceptions. The Toronto Star, periodically. Uh, somewhat sympathetic, uh, and other other um, outlets like TVO and, CB, and CBC are fairer in terms of listening to uh, interests other than corporate interests, and of course that's our concern.
1: Okay, that's the story on the particulars of the bill. Let's now go to the other story here, which is, of course, the first ever use uh, of the notwithstanding clause by the government of Ontario to set aside a court decision. Let's do a little. Charter of Rights and Freedoms 101 here, for those who don't know. The notwithstanding clause of the charter is essentially what?
2: What uh, what the uh, Section 33, or the notwithstanding clause, says that the government can pass a declaration saying that the law will be operative and apply notwithstanding anything in the charter. And that's what happened in this case, is they passed the old law, basically saying regardless of what. Uh, Just as Ed Morgan said about Section 2B of the Charter, uh, this law is going to apply regardless.
1: So basically, it's giving governments the right to set aside constitutionally enumerated rights that citizens have because the government of the day is prepared, if there is a political price to be paid, to pay that price. Fair to say?
2: That's correct. And it's uh, as you know, it's for a five-year limit. Uh, In other words, within five years, they would have to reintroduce the Declaration if they want the declaration to continue.
1: Now, admittedly, this is the first time that the province of Ontario in nearly four decades will use the notwithstanding clause. However, I am hearing, obviously, supporters of this government say, the the clause is in the charter. So presumably, it's there to be used,
2: no? Well, you know, it has a very interesting history. And, and the history, you may recall, Steve, back in 1982 was that Prime Minister Trudeau was very, very firmly in favor of an entrenched uh, Charter of Rights or Bill of Rights, and he couldn't completely sell that because the Western Premiers, particularly Alan Plakeney of Saskatchewan, was very concerned about the courts overruling, uh, overruling legislation made by the legislature, and as a result of that, a historic compromise was made, and that was the notwithstanding clause, uh, so that Trudeau got his Charter of Rights, but there was a notwithstanding clause in respect to certain freedoms in the Charter. That was the compromise, but as many people have said, it was intended to be used very sparingly as a last resort. Because what you're doing with the notwithstanding clause is you're overriding Charter Charter rights and, and the Charter of Rights, as you know, is very, very popular with Canadians. So you're right, there could be a there could be a political price to pay and if they're prepared to pay it then uh, you know they they take the gamble.
1: There's something deeply ironic ab- about. <laughs> There's something deeply ironic about this, in as much as we have the notwithstanding clause in part because an NDP premier, Alan Blakeney of Saskatchewan, was afraid that union rights would be trampled if if they didn't have this so-called you know safety valve in the constitution. And now this safety valve is being used to, in your view, deprive union members of their rights. That's kind of yep. weird,
2: isn't it? It it is a it is a historical irony, but as I said, that was the historic compromise. Certainly, Pierre Trudeau did not want a with, notwithstanding clause, and he was finally satiated because he said, "Okay, you can have a notwithstanding clause, so long as it doesn't override language rights," and and that's how the deal was done. But you're right; it was Alan Blakeney, for the most part, that stood firm in respect of uh, demanding a, the notwithstanding clause.
1: Hmm. Now, people are looking around asking. You know, the notwithstanding clause is kind of a nuclear option in this case. Were there other alternatives the Ford government could have employed that might not have been, you know, DEFCON 1, if you like?
2: Absolutely. And that, that's the concern that I have as a constitutional lawyer, because uh, Justice Morgan came up with a pretty quick decision. And the reason he came up with a pretty quick decision, he gave the government an opportunity to reintroduce legislation which would be compliant with the Charter. And rather than doing that, the day after he had pronounced his decision, they said, well, we're going to use the notwithstanding clause. So they didn't even attempt to come up with um, with legislation which was compliant with the charter. And of course, the other thing they could have done is they did in the City of Toronto case. They could have moved for an appeal and in the interim move for a stay of the judgment, which uh, they didn't do in this case. So um in any event uh, in my view disrespectful of the charter disrespectful of the court in uh, a very unfortunate turn of events because as you know once you use something uh, you tend to become addicted to it and you keep using it and that's going to be a very very grave situation for constitutional rights in ontario
1: well that has certainly been the uh, the practice in the province of quebec where they've used it many times over the years and the conventional wisdom in ontario always used to be no government will ever use this clause because the political price to be paid for doing so would be too high maybe we've been wrong about that maybe there will not be a price to be paid are you concerned about that
2: Well, I'm hoping there's a price to be paid. I'm hoping at the next election on June 2nd of 2022, when people are about to uh, put in their ballot, that they remember uh, what this premier did. Uh, in, In other words, in order to muzzle his political enemies, he decided to use the notwithstanding clause. And I hope they find it very reminiscent of what is going on in the United States with the Republican Party. Uh, who are acting in similar ways to muzzle the speech or the votes of uh, who view, they view to be their political enemies.
1: All right Paul in which case let's let's finish up and really discover where the rubber hits the road here. How in your view are your clients working families and and others who would who would want to take out advertising around an, an election campaign and on the subject of how well the government of the day is doing how do you think that those efforts will be disadvantaged by putting into effect what are in effect the old rules?
2: Well, the problem is, is that we had a, a great deal of evidence indicated that first of all, 12 months is is a ridiculously long period. Uh, when you have an election in June of 2022, people do not <laughs> turn their minds to the election until uh, you know certainly sometime after after the new year. So 12, 12 months is ridiculous. The other thing is the amount of money that uh, they can spend is not sufficient to mount an effective uh, effective campaign, uh, so they're really hobbled. Uh, at, when at the same time, as I said before, the government has an unlimited advertising budget uh, to spend money on advertising, and the political parties have a, a, you know huge amount of money to spend, far more than third parties. So what what is happening here? is that the political parties and the government are drowning out third parties. And Of course, the concern is always being that third parties will drown out political parties. Well, the opposite effect has occurred. And many people are concerned about that because they don't believe that the political process belongs to the government and the political parties. They feel that the independent parties are very useful. They bring forward issues that the political parties or governments don't. They add different perspectives to issues and positions taken by the political parties and government so that there is a real useful need uh, for independent third parties in the political discourse. And unfortunately, this bill is attempting to drown them out.
1: And again, just finally, just so we understand the harm that you believe this will do to your clients, let's put it on a sliding scale. Let's assume zero means no harm at all. Ten means, you know, cataclysmic (laughs) metaphysical Uh, apocalyptic harm that your clients will suffer, where do you think it is on that scale of zero to 10? About nine. No kidding, that high?
2: Yeah, yeah. Hmm. And that's why we're seriously, you know, we're seriously looking at uh, uh, challenging, legally challenging this legislation that uh, I guess is about to pass today or tomorrow.
1: Exactly right. As we sit here on a Monday afternoon, it should be in place by later tonight. So Paul Cavaluzzo, thanks a lot for joining us on the On Poly podcast today.
2: Okay, you're welcome, Stephen. Good to talk to you pleasure was ours.
1: We always conclude this podcast with our favorite quotes of the week, and we'll have that for you immediately after we ask you to give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. We always like to know what you think, what you like, what you don't like, and help make this little podcast just a little bit better. You can also shoot us an email at TVO.org. Here now is my quote of the week, and it's liberal leader Stephen Del Duca saying when Doug Ford was urged to pass a law offering sick days to employees so they wouldn't bring COVID-19 into the workplace, it took him 400 days to do so. However, and here comes the liberal leader when it comes to protecting his own political skin, when it comes to his re-election campaign, Doug Ford found, I guess, the capacity to move at lightning speed and in 24 hours come
0: up with a plan to invoke the notwithstanding clause. I think it's reckless because it's treating our Charter of Rights and Freedoms, which is something that Canadians, Ontarians, hold dear and value, as we should. It treats it like a political doormat. That's Liberal leader Stephen
1: Del Duca on the government's use of the notwithstanding clause of the Charter in order to reinstate the election expenses law the government preferred.
0: And my quote of the week comes from uh, Health Minister Christine Elliott. Uh, This is from Monday morning. She was asked if Ontario is considering any kind of financial incentives to boost the uptake of COVID 19 vaccines. Uh, We've seen the use of lotteries, for example, in other provinces and uh, some US states. Uh, And, you know, this is a concern right now because of the increased spread and severity of new COVID variants. Some doctors are saying that if we can't get our vaccine numbers up to like 90% of people over 12, Uh, We may never reach herd immunity. And here is what the health minister said about that on Monday.
2: No, we're not, because we are seeing that people are coming forward quite willingly to receive uh, their shots. We already have over 74% of the adult population has received their first dose, and we are well on our way to uh, having 20% of the population vaccinated in order to move us into step two of our reopening plan. So we're very grateful to the people of Ontario for being so willing to receive their shots.
0: That's Health Minister and Deputy Premier Christine Elliott speaking at Queen's Park on Monday. And that was episode
1: 116 of the On Poly podcast, produced by Katie O'Connor, editing with Matthew O'Mara, our production support coordinators, Nikki Ashworth and Jonathan Hallowell. JMM, how do I always like to tag this broadcast? (laughs) Stay positive, test negative. (laughs) That sounds like a good line. Why don't we go with that? As my dad likes to say, JMM, stay positive, test negative. Stay safe, Steve.